Welcome to the Teachers Unify podcast. I'm Sarah Lerner. In this episode, we'll hear from Winfred Porter, an educator and survivor from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in 2018. He speaks about his early life, being an educator, his experience from February 14th, and his journey through mental health and self-discovery. So we are here with Mr. Winfred Porter, who I have known for 10 years. He is the one who helped to hire me at Stoneman Douglas High School. I guess I can thank him and also say that this whole ride is his, is his fault. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, not uh-oh. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. I always like to start out with finding out about the guests. So tell me about your family, your childhood, where you grew up. How much time do you have? <laughs> I have all the time in the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name is Winfred James Porter Jr. I grew up in Hollywood, Florida. I was actually born in Hollywood. And I actually grew up in I mean, a small town called West Park, Florida, also known as Carver Ranches. And I attended, you know, Miramar Elementary, Perry Middle. I decided early on I wanted to be a doctor, so I attended Stranahan High School. I applied to be a part of their magnet, medical magnet program, an unbelievable experience. But uh, growing up, I had, well, actually, let me just go back. My dad died when I was really, really young. So mm. I, I think I was like three, three and a half. My grandmother and I were talking the other day, and she was just telling me that my dad would be 65 right now. Sheesh. Wow. I didn't realize so, you were so young when he passed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah very young. Mm, I'm uh, sorry. So I appreciate that. You know, in this, my early on, my grandmother and my grandfather really took a very involved role in my life. They really took time. Like every other weekend, I was going with them, spending time with them. They just gave me a better perspective of who my dad was, what he stood for, and ways that I could show up in the world and kind of represent him. I mean, for a long time, I was really afraid of dying early because I, I thought that since since he died of kidney failure, I was always fearful of getting diabetes and possibly dying of a similar cause like kidney failures like he did. And I just didn't want I just didn't want that to be the case. So I tried to make sure that I made some some like good decisions growing up and growing up. I, I really I always excelled at school. So I knew that that would be my way out of a area where. You know, most kids that I grew up with, you know, they were smoking weed or hanging out and just didn't have the structure that I had at home. And my stepdad, they were really, really involved, really supportive. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother was always home. She was older. So she was like the fill in when my mom was at work and when my mom would come home. I remember growing up many times we would be my brother and I would wait for my mom to come home because she worked overnight as a single mom. And I remember like my brother and I playing hide and go seek in the house and like sneak attacking her when she came in in the wee hours of the morning. And then oh, she I'm actually sure started... she loved that. Yeah. <laughs> and she actually she would get home at six in the morning. She worked overnight. So she's always been hard working. But my home environment, there were I mean, I don't think I, had, I don't think I had my own room until I was. 15 16 years old it was a dream like I can't wait to get my own room <laughs> so I grew up in 
some of my uncles were in and out of jail. They'll tell the story about that. My uncle, one of them was selling drugs in the back where we would sleep at. So my brother and I would share a bunk bed. One of my uncles would sleep on the bottom bunk. We didn't have central air. It was crazy. And so we didn't have central air, I don't think, until 10, 12, 13 years old. And it was crazy just thinking we live in South Florida. We're sweating, <laughs> sweating. Like, it's, it's it, it was tough. But that was always something that, you know, my, my parents always stressed. My parents, grandparents always stressed the importance of education. So that was that really kind of motivated me. And then I, I played football, basketball, ran track. Actually, in middle school, I started playing basketball. I wasn't very good at all, but <laughs> I could run and I could jump real high. So I just worked my butt off. And I remember that I played well and I didn't play well, but I just worked hard and I made the team. And I remember kids saying, oh, you suck. How'd you make the team <laughs> over me? <laughs> and I would. I would laugh, you know, and, and early on, I would always think, I think those moments like that. And then another profound moment for me was when I was in high school. And I remember I had a dream of playing football in college. Growing up, I would play, I would play sports in the street with my friends or in my driveway with a basketball goal. And I was dominant. I thought I was, <clears throat> I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. And I was, <laughs> I own my block. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, when I got to high, I was, I mean, I was very confident going into high school. When I got in there, I started playing JV football. And so I played JV football. One of the things that was, that, that I remember someone saying, we were, getting, we were getting ready to get in the car and we were preparing to go to Popeye's because that was the spot to go to Wendy's or Popeye's in high school. So I was on my way there and I remember two young ladies, they were driving us and one said, I said, I want to go to college. I'm, I'm going to college. I'm going to play football. And the girls looked at me and they laughed. And I was like, what's funny? I, I don't see anything funny. <laughs> so they were they were joking. I said, oh, I'm don't worry. I'm going. So I really I, that was a, I got a little saw, salty about that. So <laughs> what ended up happening was that really was motivation for me. I remember catching a pass one day and one of the girls, she looked at me. She was like, oh, good, good play. I looked at her like she had seven heads because these are the same people that were, these are the same people that doubted me. So I really developed a, a level of me feeling like I had to prove something to people. Eventually I ended up going to Lehigh university, got recruited by West point. So the academics and the football ability opened some doors for me. So that's, that's really my childhood, my youth in a nutshell. I didn't know you were recruited by West point. Yeah, I didn't know any better. At the time, I had uh, Samantha was pregnant. Mm -hmm. and so and Samantha's my ex-wife. We actually met in middle school. And uh, I remember seeing her walk across the gym. Who is that? <laughs> and, you know, the rest is history. But So you went to Lehigh. Did you, like, entertain the offer from West Point? No, I didn't. I, I really didn't know any better. I, because she was pregnant with my son. I didn't want to be in upstate New York and I didn't want the commitment of the six years after graduating. And I was, I was just saying, no, I'm okay. I'm straight. I actually grew up like 10 minutes from West Point. Oh yeah. Yes. And I remember we toured it when my brother and I were little and they like, while we were on the tour, they were talking about like what the soldiers had to do in the bunk and the demerits they would get if they didn't make their bed and I just remember my mom like giving me a look like you better get it together or this is where we're <laughs> sending you. <laughs> and I am 43 and I make my bed every day. <laughs> <laughs> my 
bad it's funny. It's made up too. I don't it's, play about that. No, it's funny the things that stick with me from your childhood. Yeah. All right. So you went to Lehigh. So what was your major? I majored in political science. Aside from football, were you involved in any other groups or activities on campus? Mm, not really. The, I, I wish I would have been a little bit more, but there was one group that I was a part of called the movement. Okay. What was that? So at Lehigh, Lehigh wasn't very diverse. So it was a movement to help promote diversity, to call attention to the fact that Lehigh is a very, was at the time, probably still is, a very, a, a school that lacked cultural diversity. Were you like so, a founding member or no, just a I, member? I, I just a member. I would participate here and there, but no significant leadership role. Most of my <laughs> time was spent playing Madden. Nice. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's okay. Pretty sad. pretty sad to say. Not at all. So you graduate from Lehigh and then did you get right into teaching? Yeah. So as soon as I graduated, well, I, actually, I graduated and I came home for a few days. Obviously, I had two kids by the time that I graduated from college, which is as a 21, 22 year old young man, it is a lot of responsibility. You yeah. really put being a father ahead of yourself. You know, the priority is to make sure that you raise sound and uh, productive, intelligent, grounded children. Now, I, I actually worked at a call center first and I interviewed at an alternative school. And when I went there, I mean, I actually got a job offer from a rental car company. And they were offering me to, they were offering to pay me like $28,000. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I got to get a job. <laughs> Instead of doing that, I went and interviewed for this job that as a teacher, like I said, at that uh, alternative school, it was my second time going in. I remember the principal saying, we already interviewed him. Why, why are we interviewing him again? So I obviously didn't get the job the first time. <laughs> <laughs> How do you not get hired as a teacher on your first interview? That's, I mean, you know, I, and you know what? Let me not say that because there are several people that I've interviewed that they they didn't they didn't they didn't cut it. It, it happens. So <laughs> I think that I don't think there was the urgency to have teachers on board like it is now. And that's part of the reason why I made that comment. We need teachers desperately. So, you know what, if someone's willing, you know what, you develop them. When I went in, they they hired me on. The, they hired me. They offered me the job on the second interview. And at that time, I was, you know, I was excited about taking on that role. Walk me through your professional experience from that first teaching job through when I met you in 2014 at Stoneman Douglas. So I'll give you the short story. So I started okay. at Carter Paramore, Carter Paramore Academy in Gatlin County, which is uh, just a little bit west of Tallahassee. From there, I just like really a divine intervention. I literally called a school that hadn't interviewed me and they said they didn't have any openings. It just so happened that the guy, the guy who answered the phone, the assistant principal was my elementary school peer counseling teacher. Oh, he wow. I remember him. I got the job at Apollo middle from there. I moved on. I became, I was a social studies teacher for four years, I believe. And then I be, I was promoted or I was moved into the position of magnet coordinator. From that role, I went on to Hollywood Hills High School to start the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Development Academy. So it's really, it, it, it was the military academy at the time when I started it. 
but that allowed me to rub elbows with some, you know, senior level leaders in the district and really accelerated my learning. And I had an opportunity to go interview for the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas job. It was actually Stoneman and like five or six other schools. West Broward was one and several others. And I'm thinking there's, I started circling schools that I would probably get hired at. Stoneman Douglas, this is the last school I thought would hire me <laughs> because, I mean, I don't fit the bill, obviously. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, <laughs> when I when I looked at it, when I interviewed, it was a, I had a, I felt like I had a great interview of, you know, the next day Ty calls me, he said, Hey, when, you know, you got the job. That was great. That was, you know, there's nothing like dreaming of getting that promotion and then getting that call. I told my kids we were jumping up and down. It was amazing. Uh, then from there, you know, obviously the thing, things happened with Stoneman Douglas, the, the shooting. And uh, I was, whatever, I was reassigned to Casey Wright for eight months in the talent acquisition and operations non-instructional department. And so that gave me another perspective on contracts and how the school board works and going to board meetings. And so that was a great experience. I also think it was something that really challenged me to look at my situation and embrace it in a different way, rather than it being something that was negative. Eric Chisholm really helped me see it in a different light. And that was a great, it, it was a, it challenged me, but it was a great experience. From there, I went to Boyd Anderson, spent a year there. And from there, I went to Santa Luces just so I could be a little bit closer to home because I purchased a house up in Palm Beach. And then uh, from Santa Luces, I just felt like Miramar was a good fit. And I really wrestled with this idea of applying to go to, to, to come back to Broward and working at Miramar High School and being a principal. And I was, uh, that was a tough decision because I <laughs> I love my team at Santa Luz. We had a great working relationship, great people. You know, it was a tough decision to leave, leave my daughters where they were. So here I am, principal at Miramar High School, loving every minute of it. That's awesome. So what year were you hired at Stoneman Douglas? I think 13, 14. Oh, so the year before I got there. Yeah. Okay. So fun fact, and I'm sure I told you this before, I was actually offered a job at Stoneman Douglas twice before I was <laughs> finally hired. It was <laughs> the Friday before school started of my very first year of teaching. Wow. Like I got the call Friday and school was starting Monday and I'm like, mm, thank you for the offer. But like, I've already set up my classroom. <laughs> and then when I left uh, the middle school to go to South plantation, Again, the Friday before school started, I got the call and I'm like, yeah, I definitely can't do that. So when I was finally open to taking a job there, it was nice to to have it offered. So I guess third time's the charm. We um, when we met you. We were really excited about bringing you on board and all the stuff, all the experience that you had, because yearbook's a big deal at Douglas and. Yes, it uh, is. Falkowski, Falkowski was doing the yearbook before you, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. I think that she, you all had a connection somehow. We went and, to high school together. And see, that was that was something that we were like, okay, you know what? Let's try her out. Let's bring Sarah <laughs> on board. Let's see how she does. And then, I mean, that yearbook took off. I mean, it's crazy. Like that's that's a big it's a big deal. And it is so much pride goes into creating that. And when I look at that yearbook. And some of the other ones that I've seen, 
it's the gold standard. Thank you. I tell the kids that were like, if I could, I would give them like AP competitive yearbook credit, but <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> but they they all get gold stars for me. I want to bring it back to February 14th, if we can. I want to know like what your experience was on that day, as much as you're comfortable sharing. Where do we start? Wherever you want. I'm going to try to talk about as much as I remember. You know, sometimes I, I think that the further we get away from it, there are some moments that are really profound that you that I'll never forget. And there are little detailed moments where, eh, I don't know, it's a little fuzzy. So start that day. I had just, I think I had I, a few days earlier, I had, I had won AP of the year. So I'm still riding high on that. You know, it's like, this is a big deal. I want AP of the year. I'm in good spirits. I'm excited about what's going on. Uh, the, we have a fire drill earlier in the day. We evacuate. Everything runs smoothly, perfect, beautiful. I'm excited about the day. I'm excited about everything that's in store. Going home to my wife and my kids. It's exciting. My son's there. Lunch is gold. You know, everything's rolling smoothly. Uh, then that afternoon, we hear the fire alarm go off. And I'm like, I was. I remember talking to Brandy Edmosio mm-hmm. and Danielle Driscoll. They were in my office and we were talking about Algebra 1 and how we can improve student achievement in that particular area. So we were just talking about standards and testing and, all, I mean, a number of factors. I remember hearing the alarm go off and I got up and I immediately moved to go look at the fire panel. I think Denise said, I'll go look. I'll, I'll take a look. Hold on right here. So she goes over there. She looks at the panel. I go to the panel. Peterson's at the panel. It says gas building 12 or smoke something it says smoke or gas building 12 i'm i'm gonna go with gas building 12 so we're like hey it says gas building 12 so the team is deployed everyone's going around you know i'm sitting i say you know okay the alarm goes off hey we need to evacuate then i so i'm at the back you know where you know it's in the front office is here i gotta walk down the hallway and then go into another office to see the fire panel come up i run back up to the office i make an announcement evacuate i go back into student services just to kind of, hey, what's going on? Are we evacuating? Because that's what I always did. Then I hear, hey, no, 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 cold red, lockdown. Cold red, what's going on? I run back up to the panel and I tell people, cold red, lockdown, cold red, lockdown. Uh, after the fact, I would learn that some people heard it, some people didn't. Uh, my son, what people don't know is my son is in the building. He's in the 400 building. You know, crazy thing is when, when, we, when I call a cold red, I start locking doors. I see custodians outside. Man, what are y'all doing? Get inside. Let's go. Cold red. Let's go. Come on. Come on. I see people running into the auditorium. People are moving quickly. I remember a dad is standing outside because I called him because what I didn't mention is Coach Feist and I had some girls that we we searched their car. This is the last time I saw Coach Feist alive. Mm-hmm. Was we um we were in the parking lot and we had to search this girl's car because oh we thought she they were in the car during lunch. We brought the girls inside. The girl's dad was there to pick him, pick her up. And I let him in and re- re- instead of letting her out just so he would be safe. Police walk in through the front office. They're like, hey, do you know where Building 12 is? Do you know where such and such? Down there. Alan Strauss is calling me. Mike Ramirez is calling me. Dr. Wands is calling me. Are you guys on a cold red? Is there a shooter? Man, I don't know what's going on. Y'all calling me asking me these questions. 
I know now that, you know, obviously they were concerned and the, the media knew more than I did at the time, which was crazy. And I didn't see what was going on in front of the school, like traffic being blocked off, BSO being present. Were you in, you were in student services? I was, I, I, so in student services, there were kids that I had brought in right. and I put into that area by the camera room, by the, yeah. the staff bathroom. And then I redirected those kids to room 127. I looped okay. around, Terry and I looped around. Morford came up there because he wanted to look at the cameras. I said, Jeff, what's going on? I don't know, man. I've been trying to call Chris. I hope mm. he's okay. I don't know what's going on. At some point, somebody says, at some point, it sounds like fireworks, firecrackers. I think I heard that a little bit, but me being, we had a kid who had done that earlier. So your brain is trying to connect the dots to things that this kid had pulled the lever. He, you know, he'd done stuff like that before. So I was like, come on, I know exactly who it is. His his face pops up into my, into my uh, brain right now. Jeff and Greenleaf are going through the cameras. Terry and I are making sure that it, offices are cleared. People are hiding. I remember students in 127 laughing and, you know, having a camera out. I said, hey, this isn't funny. This is serious. I need you to put the camera away. Sit down. You guys need to be quiet. It was silent. You could hear a pen dropping there. I rotated around through guidance, came back down by the testing coordinator's office, Mellinger. And then I came back down by where Marjorie's office was and walked back up towards the front office. I just remember it, it being like silent and Terry and I were talking. She said, hey, Mr. Porter, do you want me to call the area office? Yes, Terry, I don't know what's going on. You know, I didn't know what was going on. At one point, I stuck my head out of the, out of the door going into the south lot. And what I remember was, or the bus loop was, put your hands up. Put your MF and hands up. I said, I work here. Medina says, hey, that's my boss. He works here. I don't give a boop who you are. Get on the boop, boop ground. Get on the wow. ground. Get down. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got my keys. I got my radio. I'm like, all right, I I'm coming. I'm coming. So they said, come out, get out. Let's go. Get out, get out, get out, get out. And I'm like, OK, I'm getting out. So now I'm with the police. They're asking me questions. Are you an administrator? Yes. Who, they take me to the sergeant. I talk to the sergeant. They had a body cam on. They're asking me questions. Terry has my cell phone. I have my watch. My son, uh, I don't know, my, my uh, Samantha calls me. Hey, when have you seen Deshaun? I didn't even think about my son. And that sounds so bad to say. I was thinking about every, like everyone's safety. And my son reached out. He said, Samantha said, oh my gosh, have you heard from Deshaun? No, oh no, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. He calls me, dad, are you okay? I'm good, son. Are you okay? Yeah, dad, I'm okay. Miss Verba, she, uh, she was like, Porter, Winfrey is with me. He's good. And I was like, thank God. She was like a guardian angel to him that day and so many other kids and so many other teachers served in that same role. So, you know, you see videos and you see stuff that happens that you didn't know about. And it's like, man, you know, I, I remember the night after going home and feeling, you know, like just terrible about what had happened. That's not something that, you know, ever you never forget that. And what could we what could we have done differently? And so much has, has changed in terms of safety and security procedures. Are we are we where we should be or where we I mean, a lot of a lot of the responses through the, the Florida harm prevention method or the BTAs and the SRAs, those things are good when you when you get information and you can act on it quickly. So, I mean, the rest of that day, I remember, I mean, obviously, it's, it's pretty well documented about the camera. 
connection between Peterson and uh, and the uh, and the guys in the camera room trying to figure out if if Cruz is still in the building and. While that's going on, I'm outside with the police, and the police are saying, is this live? I'm like, no, it's not live. It's, it was reported. They're just trying to locate where he went. Like, we were dealing with old information. But then Medina came out to where I was. Like, I had gotten out of the building. I was right outside of the 1,000 building or 100 building. And then I walked out to the street to where the central command was for BSO. In the, the bus loop? No, no, in the street. In oh, the oh. Okay. What is it? Pine Island? Yeah. Is that what? So I was out there. They had like a camper or a, a bus out there. And I remember them calling us on, hey, what's, what happened? Do you know? Did you see? And we were like, no. So Medina says to me, Porter, it's that, it's that kid, man. That kid, he, you know who he is? He always wears the camouflage. I'm like, I don't, I don't know who that is. That's who you talking about? He said, uh, he had on a hat. He wears that JLTC shirt. It's like the same shirt you have on. He was... He goes to school. He used to go to school here. He goes to school here. I saw him. I was like, man, who? I don't I don't know who you're talking about. So he said, Cruz. I said, Cruz. 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 Uh, Nicholas Cruz? And so he said, yeah, yeah, that's him. So I tell Greenleaf, hey, Greenleaf, it was Cruz. Somebody, Morford, somebody got, a, got the yearbook and brought it and showed Osgood. Or he went in. Somebody saw it. Major Osgood. I remember him. Um. Uh, they ID'd the kid as Nicholas Cruz. And then I think the hunt was on to look for him. And then that's when they found him at that subway to finally just like, or wall, that subway in the Walmart. And after, I remember trying to figure out like where the reunification point is. Samantha's calling me. They're worried. Friends are at my house. Hey, what's going on? People are blowing on my phone. Are you okay? Are you okay? Um, and then thinking about the reunification point, Seeing seeing kids walk down the street, seeing parents just waiting, uh, us going back into the school, writing statements, looking at the the campus and the aftermath of doors being broken and windows being cracked, and like it was a ghost town, and it was this there was this eerie feeling on campus. I remember going home and just laying down and like talking to Samantha, pouring my heart out about like the intimate details of, of what I'd seen and what I'd experienced and just embracing my kids like that, that stuff is, that was, it was, it was tough. And then having to consider, Hey, have who, who, who like, it was one point when I called guys on the radio, stops, Feist, Hickson, you know, Medina, just saying, Hey, you guys, are you guys good? Let's just check in. And I didn't hear anything from Feist and, and uh, Hickson. And I was like, and Stobley came on the radio and he said, man, I didn't, I don't think it's looking good for Feist. And I was like, I said, I said, wow, you know what? And I'm all along, I'm like, hey, what's going on? And then all of this stuff started to become a reality as the, as the time went on. And it was unreal because you see in the principal's conference room, district personnel are in there, superintendent, our, our school became like a, a war room in, in a sense, just to determine how like like going through that at that scale is is sickening you know what i mean not something that you ever want to have to live through i i mean i've shared my story a gajillion times and anyone who's listened to the show has heard me but when i got outside i didn't hear code red cuz it must have been called before i got back up to my classroom so I had no idea that we were on lockdown until I saw everybody running. But when I got outside, 
it sounded like firecrackers. Like that's what I heard. I mean, you know where my classroom is, but I'm on the second floor of building six. And when I got out to the the open clearing between six and then four and nine, the sound bounces everywhere. And it sounded like firecrackers. And then I saw kids running and then I went upstairs. But you mentioned the media knowing everything. Like that's how I was getting my information. And in any interview I've done, you know, I said that like, obviously there were no announcements being made. There were no texts from admin or emails happening. And I, you can't fault anyone for that because you all were dealing with crazy stuff downstairs, but all of the information I was getting, and I imagine the other teachers were getting, was coming from the outside. And I kept checking Twitter and there were no like district updates and like nothing. So if it wasn't for everybody blowing up my phone, I wouldn't have known either. And when when you said it and when I say it and like when we say we had no idea what was going on all these years later, it sounds so ridiculous. Like, what do you, how did you not know what was going on? But we literally had no idea what was going on. So like where, where, where the where the main office is, it, it sounds bad to say we didn't know what was going on. I think. But at first, none of us did. If you weren't in no, that no. building, none of us did. You you wouldn't like it. It was confined to one building. It came a time when you knew what happened. Mm-hmm. There was a shooter on campus when Peterson had encountered that space. So I didn't. I, I guess it's better to say I didn't know the extent of what right. had happened until afterwards. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't. Right. We definitely didn't know that. How many people? No. Who was injured? I didn't see that until I I saw the news, and so that was very hard. And then. That we didn't know, like at first when I first watched the video, I thought I thought the uh, dust that was coming from the ceiling tiles was smoke coming from the gun that caused okay. the fi- that caused the fire alarm to go off. Yeah, but it was the it was the dust it, the 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 soot or whatever you call it from the ceiling tiles. You almost you don't know what you don't know until you kind of go down that path because things are happening so quickly. And that's why communication is so key in those situations and practice and situational awareness. And I think that when when you're in those situations or if you're in that situation and people are trying to press on the radio to talk in the middle of it, it it has to be like people have to understand how tr- like they have to be trained how to communicate in those types of situations. So the Parkland Safety Commission and that group coming up to the MSD Safety Commission, whatever we want to call them. They've, I think they've done a lot of work about around how to respond in those types of situations. And it's probably one of the, one of the first groups of law enforcement. I, well, I, you know what? I don't know. I don't want to even say that blindly, but the level at which they've helped to shift the narrative around prevention and reporting threats is, I see the, the fruit of that work and what we do now and how we do the work so that we can mitigate that and help improve communication. Uh, because of MSD and what happened, you have local law enforcement that can tap into the camera system on your campus and they can be working those cameras from behind the scenes. And that's something that I think is is huge because in the, like you, you, you think about 
Greenleaf's great at working the cameras, but he doesn't get trained to respond in an emergency situation by looking at cameras in a high stress situation. And I mean, he's a military vet. So we, we've come a long ways when it comes to responding to uh, school, like these types of emergency situations. And I think that a lot of our teachers were trained. They knew how to get into the safer space. They did that. Uh, I think a lot of a, a lot of loss was possibly mitigated because teachers knew to get into those safe into those hard corners. Yeah, and that was something that we talked about in a training. So I mean, look, some teachers didn't even come out of their room. The second floor untouched. So I think that's a testament of just what they what they knew. Them going to the training that they were that, that was talked about. Could there have been much more training? Of course. I mean, there's never you can never train yeah. enough. Right. And hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, think about how much worse it would have been if we didn't have that training, you know, what turned out to be three weeks before the shooting. Like, I remember sitting in the auditorium and I don't remember who the guy was, but I think he was from the school, uh, SIU school. Sure. And, (laughs) (laughs) and he played the like 911 tape from Sandy Hook. And like, I remember hearing that and this huge wave of anxiety came over me like, holy shit, like, what am I going to do in a drill situation? Because it it is very real. And we thought it was going to be, you know, like a real simulation with blanks and, you know, like actual sounds and all of this stuff. And had we not had that training, I think things could have been far worse. Not to say that what happened was, you know, not terrible on its own, but, oh God, I can't even, can't even imagine how much worse it would have been if we weren't trained to find the hard corner, to not get out of our rooms, to hunker down and, and stay where we were. Did you leave campus? Like, I know I was, I feel like I was one of the last areas to be evacuated at 530-ish. And then I went to the the Marriott to be questioned and we all were kind of bussed over there. Did you leave campus or were you still there into the evening? No, I didn't leave. We didn't leave. The administrators were there. How late do you think you were there? Do you remember? Until about 11 o'clock. Oh, I know wow. Denise, Chief Kowalski was bringing, he was, and they had pictures, people had to identify who students were, mm. you know, that was, that was tough. So what were the, the hours, the days, the weeks, even the months after, like for you? Um, it was, it was, um. I mean, I realize it's kind of a silly question. Like we can all assume no, what no, it was no. like, but. It was stressful. It was a time of great uncertainty. It was, did I say scary? No. It was a little scary. Everybody was on edge, tension, all of that. Lots, I mean, trying to come up with solutions. You're you're on edge because the community is looking. They're like, oh, a gate is open. You need to get close. So it was, we were reacting to a lot of situations that were coming up. And it was a heightened sense of security. Clear, the talks about clear backpacks, IDs, so much stuff was birthed from the, the tragedy quickly, urgently. A lot of change, lots of communication. Ty, I don't know how he did it. I don't either. Do you feel that 
like outside of the school environment, like were there changes for you in how you just approached everyday things or how you were parenting? Like, did you lose your patience more often? Like the stress of everything? I don't, I don't think I, I, I felt like I held it together pretty, I mean, fairly well, but I know I was, I may have had a short fuse on certain situations. So I, I know I needed to have, I had a shorter fuse with some things, but I knew I had to be, I knew I had to be patient. I had to be loving. And I knew I realized my kids may have been dealing with some, uh, with some stress. So it's just, uh, just a lot of, a lot of different pieces. Was it difficult? Was it difficult for you and for your son to come back to campus after the two weeks that we were off? No, no, no. I love working. At, I loved working at Douglas. That was that was my family, you know. So uh, to be around those people, that was a part of my healing, you know. Just being able to love on people and give our kids a hug and you know encourage the staff. Those were things that that brought about a level of healing. It was all of the outside noise that added additional stress and strain, you know. But that mm-hmm. that community of learners that was there, that community of teachers was. I mean, it's a great, great staff, great experience for me. So, so I wanted to be, I wanted to be around everybody. Okay. So then as a parent, did you feel, I guess, did you like, as a family, did you make the decision for your son to come back instead of doing like virtual school? Cause so many kids, not as many as I think we all thought, but so many kids decided to do the virtual route for the end of the school year. Yeah, no, that wasn't an option. No, my son plays sports. He wanted to run track. That wasn't, I mean, we just, when faced with adversity, one of the things that we always do is we we stand up and we keep pressing, we keep marching, keep moving forward. And so, although there were some challenges, I know that I felt confident in our ability to keep kids. Sounds crazy saying this, especially after the event, but it sounds, uh, it was, it was important that we brought them back to that place so that we could, you know, show that we could get it right to have things in place. And, uh, you know, some people will some people will listen this listen to this and maybe critical. You know, how can you say these things? How can you say this? You know, but it's I just felt like um uh, I felt like where where else would he want to be other than around his friends in person, enjoying their company? You know, it, it, taking him out of his daily routine would have been something that would have thrown like that would have thrown the rhythm of his his high school experience off. He needed to be in that space. And I, I agree. And I remember my husband had asked if I still felt safe and if I wanted to go back and I couldn't think of anywhere else I wanted to be and where I needed to be. Cause I knew I needed the community of the faculty and staff, but I also needed the kids and I knew that yeah. the kids needed me and, you know, all of us to listen and to help them just as much as we needed them to help us. I get it. You were such a rock for so many of us. Rock star outside of, you know, before the event, but after such a rock, how did you take care of yourself and your mental health? Oh, I appreciate that. I think um, church, a lot of times I would go to church and just like the time of worship, man, I would just, I would, I would cry and, or tears. My eyes will well up. You know, it's hard to say that I cry, but like my eyes will well up and that will feel like such a, a place of release, loss of therapy. Dr. Foster was huge. 
but just talking me through, you know, encouraging me. I mean, that was important. My faith, I think, was something that was not I think that was that was really what helped me a lot. And then just doing the things that I enjoyed. I think uh, my son and I in 2018, we were still living in Coral Springs we, and we had kind of started to talk about having a home built. So I was focused on that. I was still locked in on trying to become a principal and jumping in the intern principal program. And I was thinking about things that I love to do and things that were important to me and, and really locking in on that. But just spending time around good people. I had I had great friends uh, and a, just a, a great support system that loved on me in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of the outside noise from the rest of the world and the people outside of the community to really get outside of my head because me making that call for people to evacuate, which is our standard procedure, that alone was something that I wrestled with for a long time. Like when you told people to evacuate, if you knew that it was a shooting earlier, you could have saved more lives. And so to see people in the hallway and what happened with that and to see Ross Bierski and how he like miraculously was able to get out of there, you know, it's so many kids were able to escape they were in the hallway and it's just, you know, living with that decision early on was, was really tough. Thankfully with therapy and something like some meditation, journaling, years of therapy has really helped me. And I think just recently I've come to a place like going through that, going through a divorce, moving, da, 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 all of those things have boom, 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 boom. So you have the shooting, you're questioning your identity with that. You get put under investigation, you start questioning your identity with that. Then you go to a new building. People don't know you. You feel like you got to prove yourself all over again. You're questioning your identity with that. Then you go through a divorce. You're questioning your identity. You're like constantly, I feel like a, 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 a I don't want to say a butterfly coming out of the cocoon, but you know that you're, you're molting. You're shedding some old skin and you're coming into a new season. And that's where I think I'm finally at a place where I can come into a new season. My heart breaks for parents and, you know, for, for the families that were tragically impacted and devastated, my heart breaks because, you know, I, I never want that to be the case. I never wanted that to be the outcome that we had. And I, I, I never, if I, if it was in my, within my control, something like that would have never happened. And I know everybody else feels the same way. I'm glad that not only that you went and spent so much time going to therapy, but that you're so open to talking about it. Because I think there's such a stigma around mental health, and I don't want to misspeak here, but I think there is a huge stigma within communities of color, men in communities of color, openly speaking about or even being open to the idea of going to therapy. So, you know, the fact that you have, in my mind, it's necessary because of what we went through, but you know, being open to admitting it and talking about it is, is huge. Yeah. Well, that's, that's something that I like. I don't, so we always talk about like men and therapy, especially men of color and how sometimes that can make you feel or seem weak. And it's like this sense of pride that comes with it. I need somebody to talk to because <laughs> I, I mean, and even normalizing it with some of my friends, like, Hey, I'm going to talk about how I'm feeling. And if y'all don't like it, we you know, <laughs> but you have to find your group where you can like embrace the fact that hey, I, at church as an usher, I would talk through some of the challenges that I would face that I was facing, things that I was feeling, and other men would say, 
men of color would say, hey, man, well, why are you thinking like that? They would challenge my thinking. They would say, well, have you thought about this? And I'm like, OK, you know, what? that's a good point. So when it was time to sit down with a third party and have and, and talk about therapy. And then we, when you think about MSD and the benefit of going to therapy, like it was they, they Aetna or whoever our insurance provider for incentivized us going so that we could prioritize our, heal, our healing. And that's that's important. So there was no way I was going to neglect that. Good. I mean, I, I just remember finishing, working to finish the yearbook. And so many of my students on staff were like, you know, listen, learner, I can't stay today. And, you know, why? Life therapy at four. I'm like, go, please. I'll see you tomorrow. Like, please go. Because my appointment is at five. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not staying that long either. But I don't think that anyone would have been so open. Well, I shouldn't say anyone. There would have been a very small percentage of faculty, staff, students who would have openly spoken about going to therapy prior to the shooting. It has become such a, a necessary for all of us that I... I'm glad that people were and are open to talking about it. I agree with that. How has living through the shooting, surviving gun violence, how has that impacted you and your family and, you know, also your son who was on campus? I, I think my son, he um, he took it. I mean, he, he's been a soldier with all of that. So he, he kind of has a, a similar mindset to me. He's had great friends, and uh, I don't think he's been afraid. He's been able to kind of embrace challenges. So he's been he's been pretty good. It, I think it really impacted my youngest daughter the most because she would be emotional. She would be crying at school. She would be scared. She would be like, Dad, can you get me? We just had a cold red. I got scared. I'm like, baby, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. So I started to try to teach them or coach them on a, a few areas as related to uh just situational awareness and all of that, that, that was so important. But I, I think they, you know, Samantha was supportive. I think my family was, they were, they, they, they always had my back. They were always loving and supportive throughout the process. So I know you talked about like having your, your group, like your people, what is it like? And I don't know if you, you know, talk to other dads about this, but what is it like as a black man raising a black son, two black daughters, given the issues of gun violence in communities of color outside of school shootings. It can be tough sometimes, but you know what? I, I try to teach my kids how to make good choices so they don't put themselves in positions to possibly have their freedom compromised. So if I get pulled over by the police and I feel like it's unjustified, I tell my son, be quiet. I want you to just like, just chill. This is what you should do. It's a teachable moment. Right. My hands are on the steering wheel. I'm talking to the officer in a respectful manner. You know, I, um, I'm not putting my, I'm not putting myself in a position to have that be questioned. And so um, I'm just constantly talking to them about their dispositions, their attitudes, that, you know, their appearance when they go out. So those things are things that some people don't have to worry about. But for me, it's like, listen, let's conduct ourselves a certain way when we go out of this house. You represent the Porter brand. It's important that you conduct yourself a certain way. You're not coming with me looking all shabby. No. Step your game up. 
Let's make sure that we speak and use our words in a respectful manner when addressing when you're addressing an adult. I mean, my son is 21 now, so like you need to be able to challenge authority respectfully in a way that you know you go through the proper channels to do that. If that means that you're dealing with a supervisor, if you're dealing with a supervisor, you respectfully find a way to interact with that individual, but you need to make sure that your dignity and remains intact and you can walk away from that conversation with, with a voice. And, you know, you have a voice, use that accordingly. Do you feel that you like spoke to your son about this stuff differently than your daughters? No, I spoke to all of them about it. Uh, you know, well, you know, yeah, my son being a black man, a, a, a black man, the plight that he might face is a little bit different. But right. I think my son naturally, he I'm not concerned about him because of the foundation that's been laid. He's watched me. I feel I feel good about him going into the world and being okay. I can say knowing you as long as I have that you have raised three wonderful children who are representing the Porter brand, as you call it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Last question. So in your new role as principal, which is so well-deserved, and I could not be happier for you. <laughs> Thank you. How will you use all of your educational experience, but specifically your time at MSD, to lead your your new staff and to help them through any drills that, you know, lockdown drills that they have to do? We've done, we've done a few already this year, not drills, like real. One of the things that I have mentioned is that communication is typically the first thing that breaks down in emergency situations. And so one of the first things I called is, who can call a cold red? Anyone. Let's make sure we're all on the same page with that. Anyone can call a cold red. In an emergency situation, what forms of communication do we have in place to make sure? You Can you hear him? A little bit. Oh, my gosh, man. <laughs> So, uh, what kind of dog wanna, is it? We're not even going to give him no attention right now. <laughs> He's ready for me to walk him. Okay, so I'm the, sorry. The, the thing that's so important is that they understand how important communication is, that they understand how to report incidents. So now I'm trying to train my students that they they can report potential threats anonymously using Fortify FL or Safer Watch, just because I want them to feel. Like they have several mediums to communicate about an emergency situation urgently so that my team can act quick and efficiently. So we've already established where the command center is in the event that we hear about a threat. We've established what the protocols are. I've already met with SIU, Miramar PD, my area security manager, my campus security manager, and all of my administrators. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to navigate. These are the expectations. This is the protocol. So those things have been established so that we can all be on the same page. They've responded to that? Yeah. The kids I too? Mean, the kids think that, you know, one, someone told me today that the kids think that I'm, I'm, I'm being extra with this. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you Do know, they know I'm, I'm, where you came from? You know, that's, that's one thing that I have to kind of gauge about how I want to share that with okay. them. Because I think that's important to state because it builds context. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, if someone tells me, oh, man, you know, I, I was in during 9-11, I was at ground zero. Dang. Wow. So I want to hear your story. I'm leaning in. 
uh, versus someone who says, you know what, I was in uh, Staten Island or I was in Buffalo when it happens, but I remember getting that call. And I'm like, it's not the same. It doesn't hit the same. You right. know, so just trying to reiterate the importance of wearing their IDs, making sure that they're where they're supposed to be. If you see something, say something. Excellence is the Patriot way. You know, just little things along the path that make sure that they understand the importance of them making it home safely. I think that's a huge thing for them to understand. And I think once they know who you are and where you come from, I think they will have not only a better understanding of like why you're saying what you're saying, but I think a greater respect because it does hit differently when you know the person has been through something and they're speaking from experience instead of reading a script that the district gives you. I agree with that. And I think that's the power of, I don't care what generation you're in when people, I mean, when you connect with their heart, it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. wow. And, And you know, that's that vulnerability and being like, I think that's where kids can understand. That's where they connect with you when they find, okay, he's relatable. Otherwise you're just a talking head. Is there anything else that you want to share that we haven't covered? But I really, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm just glad. I thank you for giving me an opportunity to kind of share my story. I think it's the first time I've actually done this like publicly. Really? Yeah. On a podcast Aww. or something. Yeah. This is, I've, I've never done this. I feel so honored. Uh oh. <laughs> how many how many listeners do you have? Like a gajillion. So everyone's gonna hear your story. And it's an important story to hear because the guests we've had on have been teachers and students, but you are the first administrator. And it's important to hear that side of you know the situation and an experience because you are on the inside and the back end of things. And we only know what's going on in our classroom and in our space with the kids in front of us. We don't know like everything that's going on. I can't thank you enough for not only agreeing to do (laughs) my little podcast, but for sharing your story and being so open and, making your dog wait to go for a walk. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence on Instagram and threads at Teachers Unify and follow the podcast on both platforms at Teachers Unify PC.